0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8, and we are going to continue to think about our confidence in Christ. Now, how many of you love a good trust fall? Trust fall, you know what a trust fall is? Anyone ever been a part of a trust fall? Uh, Have you ever been the person falling? Anyone ever done that? Has that ever gone poorly for anyone? Raise your hand. Yeah? Okay, there's a few trust falls out here. Now, if I asked you and I said, hey, I need need just one volunteer, one volunteer, would I get one volunteer for a trust fall? Okay, there's some, there's some, there's a few brave people out there, and I, and I'm, i, I just come on up now. You don't actually have to, have to come on up, but I just need one person come on up. And uh, in fact, uh, let's see, um, D- uh, David Dixon, why don't you just come on up here, right? Just like the biggest machoist guy. Sorry, David Brooks. You guys are like, we should have you guys arm wrestle. Um, no, you don't actually have to come up, David. But uh, you know, if I were to stand David up on this table here and say, hey, David, man, you know me. You know I love you. Uh, I pray for you. You pray for me. We're in the same life group. Uh, we we bear burdens together. We've you know we've we've prayed together. We've cried together. You trust me. I know you trust me. And so all you got to just stand on the table. All you got to do is just fall back, and I'll catch you. I right, just close your eyes and just fall. Now would David do that? No, no, and, and it's not because he doesn't trust me, trust my character, he doesn't trust our friendship. It's because he doesn't trust my strength, right? Now, I know, I know what you're thinking, Corey, you know, I've, I've seen those biceps, they're huge. Uh, no, right, so David would not do that. He wouldn't take me up on the offer, though he trusts me as a friend, as a brother. He's not going to trust me to fall from four feet in the air and for me to catch him on my own. And it's not because of my character, but it's because of my strength. And, and part of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8 is he is compelling the believers to take the promises of God that he's guaranteed, that he's that he's proclaimed through chapters 1 through 7, that God the God who justifies, the God who takes the, the guilty sinner, he, he removes their guilt and he imputes into their empty bank account all of the righteousness of Christ, and then he promises to deliver them sanctified and faithful and even glorified all the way to the end, that God is not only able to make those promises, but He is strong enough to fulfill them, to follow through and carry through. And I wonder, how safe do you feel in your walk with the Lord? How safe do you feel living under God's gracious promises? Because really, all of those promises that we have in Scripture... We've never seen the Lord Jesus. We weren't there at the cross. We weren't there at the tomb when He rose from the dead. We weren't there with the crowd as He ascended into heaven. And so what we are living by is the gracious gift of faith that God has granted through His Son, by His Spirit. And I wonder, how safe do you feel living under grace? How sure are you in your soul of those future promises that God has made? To entrust yourself to the free grace of God in what can feel like often, as Sean mentioned yesterday, a a backwards world. A a world where we've seen Christ victorious. We know Christ is victorious at the cross and in the resurrection. And yet what we experience often is the the backwards sensation, like those goggles, right? The upside down world that we experience where... It doesn't seem like grace maybe is triumphing, that that the cross maybe we feel like has maybe lost its power. And yet what Paul is saying here is that it has not. The book of Romans begins with grace and it ends with grace. He calls them saints, and, and he and he walks through chapters eight to the end, fixing them, fixing their hearts and their mind on the grace that is going to be brought to them. At the day of Jesus Christ. Just like Peter does as well. Romans chapter 8. Is all about living under grace. Living under the. The rich promises of God. And faith. That is a gift. That he will fulfill. All of those promises. Romans chapter 8. If you're there. Let's look at it together just briefly. Romans chapter 8. Begins with. No condemnation, and it ends with <clears throat> no condemnation. And that's one of the great uh, stabilizers, one of the great anchors for the soul. Is that when we are faced with our own sin and our and the own and our own struggles in our soul and the sufferings of life, we're tempted to think, "Has God left me?" Has God abandoned me? Has He forsaken me? Is God so disappointed in me that He's just kind of slowly backing away from us in embarrassment and shame and maybe He's just going to leave me altogether? I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I know I have. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation by the wrath of God in verse 1. Look at it. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that it ends with no separation from the love of God in Christ. No condemnation and no separation. Look at verse 39. He says, nothing, no height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the overarching theme is confidence in our assurance. Confidence in these rich promises, particularly in chapter 8, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing in all of the universe will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Even including suffering, persecution, and great trial, and discouragement. And so we're going to walk through this morning verses 31 of Romans chapter 8 through 39. And Paul wants us to know and wants us to be confident of the assurance of these promises that there's no condemnation and that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Even in suffering. And particularly as suffering comes. Let's read this passage together. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, th- nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. In 1563, a group of men from Heidelberg University, they got together and they wrote uh, together what we know as the Heidelberg Catechism. And here's question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Sean referenced one of the catechisms. I'm not sure which one it was yesterday. But here's the first question. And this is such a sweet... Uh, I, I actually feel like as I've read some of the Heidelberg and and some of um, the other one, the Westminster, that this, the Heidelberg is, is more pastoral in tone, more, uh, you, you kind of feel like biblical counselors wrote this thing and are giving it to God's people. Here's the first question. You can say it with me if you know it. What is my only comfort in life and in death? What is my only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. All things. That's exactly what Romans 8, 28 and 29 talks about. Because I am His, Christ, through His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And He makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him. Is that your heart? Do you want to live for Him wholeheartedly from now on until the end? I think that's one of the richest confessional statements that I've ever come across. And I know many of you have returned to that simple question and answer many times in your own life, and we rehearse it often in church. But really, the authors here are are really pressing in on and leaning on the doctrine of assurance, which is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. What is my only comfort in life and death? It's that I'm not my own. I don't belong to me, but I belong to Jesus Christ. He owns me. He, He possesses me. At the time of our salvation, He became to us Lord and Savior. Savior and Lord, who is master over our lives. Christ owns us, and you might add that, that that we know it to be true, and that we're persuaded that Christ owns us, and that we're persuaded that He's a good King and He's He's uh, worthy to be followed and, and to suffer for. He's worthy. And even if you think about what a what a catechism is, it's a question and answer in order to impart truth. And make you certain of that doctrine, right? That's why we teach our kids Bible verses. That's why Awana is so meaningful. That's why Adventure Club means so much. That's why catechisms to our children are so beneficial. Because they plant deep doctrine down in their hearts. And so that by God's grace, He takes that knowledge and He brings them to salvation. He converts them uh, over the doctrine that they have already come to know and by His grace will believe. And that's exactly what Paul wants for us in this text, that we would be confident, we would be certain, we would have certainty in our salvation. And so, one question that you could ask of this text is, how secure is our salvation? How certain is it? How uh, sturdy is our salvation? And we're going to look at three aspects of The believers confidence and hope from this text and it's it's the double bond of this text of God's love for us and Christ's love for us that can never be severed that gives us confidence to face sufferings that results in our ultimate victory over sin and even Satan right when he says powers We know that there's not just earthly powers, but there are demonic, angelic powers that uh, are your enemy that are seeking to distract and to destroy your faith. And that overall, he would be even victorious over all the things that threaten to discourage us in verses 38 to 39. And so brothers and sisters... We could not be more secure, and I want you to see that in this text this morning. So first, let's look at the security of the believer's salvation. Look at verses 31 and 32 again. And may we become more confident in our salvation to run after Christ until the very end as a result of this text. Let's look at our confidence. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all? things how secure is our salvation paul begins with the big so what question right Uh, so what what shall we say to all of these things well what things is he talking about well back up a verse uh, to starting uh two verses starting in verse 29 and really verse 28 as well we know that for those who love god all things work together for good what do we say to that For those who are called according to His purpose. What do we say to that? What What is this calling? Those who are foreknown. What do we say to that? Predestined to be conformed in the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined He called and justified. And those whom He justified He also glorified. To be foreknown doesn't mean that God simply knows facts in advance that He chooses people who would somehow later stumble upon saving faith and would maybe meet Him halfway and believe by their own free will. No, that is not what Paul is talking about here. To be foreknown means to be loved from before the foundations of of the earth in the eternal plan and mind of the triune God who is omniscient, all-knowing, and as divinely loved, chosen and loved those who He would pour out His mercy and grace upon who did not deserve it. That's what it means to be foreknown. Long before a Christian knows God, God has known him or her and entered in anticipation into a relationship with them even before the foundations of the world because God's will is unstoppable and all that... The Father has given to the Son, Jesus will lose none of them. And so, to be foreknown is to be foreloved by an infinitely holy and loving God. But Paul also says, predestined. So what do we say to these things that Paul has just said? Well, to be predestined means that God begins to put this personal foreknowledge into effect. And so in verse 29, we're told God's purpose. Look at verse 29. What is His purpose? His, His predestining What are his plans for this foreknowledge? He says, to be conformed, as Graham taught a a couple of months ago, into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what are his purposes? What were his predestining plans? But that you should become perfectly Christ-like. Not perfect this weekend. Not perfect in a year, unless the Lord Jesus comes then. Not perfect on your own, but that one day you would be... Gathered up with God, with Christ, and that He would make you fully like His Son, sinless, with a will and a a perfect desire to do all that He says. But then, secondly, that you should become part of a large family of Christ, a large Christ like family. That's what He says that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers, that He might be the firstborn. And as you think into the future, the the world isn't going to be ruled by just a a whole lot of individual people. No, but we, the people of God, we will rule on this earth as the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, predestined for it. The firstborn Jesus among many brothers, that's you and I. All of Christ's Christ-like family will be with Him on this new earth ruling and reigning with him. But also, Paul says that they were called. He means the the effective call, the effectual call uh, of God, rather than just the open invitation as we go into the world and we proclaim the gospel. All hear, but some believe, right? Some hear the call and they say, that's my my Lord. I am a sheep. I hear my shepherd's voice. I'm going to go to the shepherd. Paul says that you who believe have been called irresistibly to the shepherd. That's what it means to be called. It's the call that speaks light into darkness. And you come out of your cave of sin and you come into the light and say, Jesus saved me by His grace from life to death. And you see that in Romans chapter 9, the the that same use of the word calling. But then Paul also says that we're justified And that's really at the heart of the book of Romans. And when God calls a man or a woman, he declares him or her righteous on the basis not of their own good deeds, not of their own works, not of their own will. But on the basis of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul picks that up in this section here. Those who are called are righteous justified. They are pardoned from their guilt. The debt has been paid. The, 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 the penalty has been paid in full. And then finally, Paul says, so so as Paul says in, in verse 31, what do we say to all these things? What do we say about justification and glorification? What do we say about this promise that that our future in eternity with the Lord being glorified is as good as done? It's in the past tense. He says they have been glorified. It's as good as done. What do we say to all this? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? All of these things are true. And so the security of the believer's salvation is is in this. That if God is for us, in verse 31, who can be against us? If all of these things are true, which they are, and all of them are unchanging and unshakable, which they are, then... Verse 31, if God is for us, if God is for us in all of these ways, who could possibly stand against us? And then this. Here's the next question that he asks. You know, a a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question like, Jediah, do you like pizza? Like, I don't even need to hear him answer the question, right? I, I know the answer to the question. You do like pizza, right? Yeah, you love pizza, right? Ask any guy you like pizza. Yeah, it's a rhetorical question. You don't even you don't even need to hear the answer. You know the answer just by the nature of the question. He who did not spare his own son verse 32, here's the next part of our security, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Answer, of course he'll give us all things. All that we need to persevere, all that we need to press on, all that we need to keep hoping in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare His own Son, how will He not with Him also graciously give us all things? In other words, your salvation is so secure that all of the resources that you need to persevere have been granted to you. In the the gift package of salvation, you have everything that you need, maybe a survival kit, to survive, to make it by His grace. If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, answer, God is for you, and no one can frustrate His purposes. In other words, many will be against you. They will. You might even feel like your own spouse is against you sometimes. Maybe your own children or children, your own parents are against you. We're sinners. And there's people from without, right? people from the world that that will stand against you. You're going to work a job in the world one day, teenagers, and there there will be people who say, You believe in Jesus? That's garbage. Why why would you follow someone you've never met? But if you are trusting in Christ because He has transformed your heart and life, not even those accusations can stand against you. Because your faith is secure in Him. He, He will keep you. He will hold you. He will cause you to say, no, no. I know that Jesus died. I know that He rose. I know that He's coming again. Can I share with you the best news in the world? i tell you some more about that. I know you don't want to hear it, but I'd love to share with you more as we sit and eat ice cream or whatever it is. Many will be against you, but because of what God has done in showing His love toward us, there is nothing that we have to fear. And so Paul's gospel logic is this, in this first point, and the next two will move quicker. But if you're afraid if that someone could oppose you or even take your life or preach a message that is against christianity to convince you to disbelieve god remember god did not even spare his own son from death a wicked gruesome brutal death in order to make sure that you cannot be separated from him ever ever not any sin could separate you from the love of christ if he is lord of your life If you have trusted in Him. Not one person who is saved walks away. Not one is lost. No one falls through the cracks. God did not spare or hold back His own Son to save His elect. And therefore, Paul says, how much more will He not spare any effort to give us all that Christ died to purchase for us? All things, all good and all bad, working together. Working together. For your good. Listen to another uh, statement of of this in First Corinthians chapter three from Paul. He says this. This is this is just an amazing statement. All things are yours, right? God did not spare His own Son, and then kind of transition to this text. So all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So, again, here's the logic. If Christ is God's, right? Christ the Son belongs to the Father inseparably for all of eternity and the Spirit belongs in perfect unity and relationship with the Father and the Son. If those things are true, which they are, and nothing can ever change that, then and you're in Christ, then all of these things, the, the world, life, death, present or future they are yours you you win believer this is how john piper put it he says god reigns so supremely on behalf of his elect listen to this that everything which faces us in a lifetime of obedience and ministry will be subdued it will be maybe you could say it it, it can be harnessed by god god can take up all of those things Subdued by the mighty hand of God and made the servant of our holiness and of our everlasting joy in God. In other words, death, life, the present, the future, the good, the bad, the, the sweet things, and the brutally painful things, God is not wasting any of that and He will use it in your perseverance. All the resources that you need are yours. God has not given you a supercar. I grew up loving the Acura NSX. I'm like, man, if I could have one of those supercar, so cool. Now they're like ancient. I don't even think they make them anymore. But it'd be like getting your, your the, the best supercar that you could ever imagine and, and someone giving that to you and just be like, hey, it's yours. I'm like, sweet. Can I take it for a spin? I'm like, yeah, no, you can't have the keys. Sorry. No keys. Yeah, and no gas either. Uh, it's just just for you to just kind of look at and and really kind of just wish it was yours uh but no driving it no gas no keys none of that god has not now i know every illustration kind of breaks down but god has not given you a supercar of salvation and not given you the resources to enjoy it and and to persevere and to press on in it and to keep on believing no he's given you all of the resources that you need for life and godliness and i know that sin is stubborn I know that there are sins that feel like they just have a death grip on your throat. And they're hard to get a hold of. And they keep you up at night. God did not spare His own Son. He didn't spare His own Son. Why? So that that sin that has a grip on your life no longer controls you, dominates you. But you can be freed from it. To live in joy and obedience. Imagine if you just said today... Lord, I want to be done. I want to, I want to leave that behind. I want to leave behind the sin that is holding me back. It has a grip on my soul. I want to be free. I don't want to live in the dark anymore. Some saints live, they, they live half their lives in the light and in the dark trying to kind of walk the, the fence. This text says there's no condemnation. You're not condemned, saint. If you come out and confess your sin, there will be zero condemnation could not be separated so don't let sin hold you back from obedience in fact the war clear warning of scripture is that you go on in sin and you do not confess your sins but you say you're in the light you're actually in the darkness and you don't have fellowship with God so test your heart test your faith unfortunately many many of us don't live like we trust him we think everyone is against me if I confess my sin I'll be condemned what good did, did Jesus do if 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 when I confess my sin and my need, my neediness like Nate exhorted us with the other day, they'll just condemn me. What good did Jesus do? That believer, that is a lie. What Paul is saying is since God gave his son, you have everything for you. You are on God's side. You are already in the light, and so walk in it. He has graciously supplied all that you need in order to live for Him. His Son, His Spirit, the Word, His Church, His promises. Because God did not spare His own Son in order to save you, we need to preach that to ourselves, don't we? God is for me. He will not abandon me. Start praying that way today, believer. Start memorizing this text. Number two. Paul then launches into the second reason why believers don't have to fear losing their their salvation. They can be certain and confident in it. And it's the sufficiency of the son's sacrifice in verses 33 to 34. The sufficiency of his sacrifice. In other words, Jesus, not you, believer, was condemned. Even your death could never pay for all of your sins. You would have to spend eternity in hell for your sins. But Jesus, the infinitely worthy and infinitely valuable and infinitely precious Lord of the universe, was condemned in your place. And His payment is sufficient to pay for all of your sins, to cover all of them. And so Paul asks two more rhetorical questions at this point. The first is this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn in verse 34? And the answers to these are found in verses 33 and 34. Look at the text. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer, no one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. No one can condemn you because Christ died already for you. And so you have nothing to be ashamed of, like Romans 1. No one can condemn you. Even Satan, as he stands before the the courts of heaven, to say, look, look at these people. Look how worthless they are. Look how sinful they are. Look how faithless they are. Look how fickle they are, right? You feel that way sometimes? Sometimes? Look how lousy they are. Look at her. Look at him. It's outrageous that you would declare them righteous. And what does the sovereign God of the universe say to this? Yes. Every charge. Every single accusation that you have brought against me is true. It's true. They've, They've committed all of the sins. They have broken all of the commandments. They've done all of that. Every charge is true. But look at the scars in my son's hands. Look at them. How dare you raise any charge or condemnation against my children? How dare you, Satan? And he is the great accuser. But God cannot be tricked, can he? He knows what his son did to accomplish your redemption. No one can condemn. God is the one who justifies. So what does that mean? When someone comes to faith in Christ and is declared forgiven by faith or by God through Christ, there is no accusations or charges of guilt or fault that can even come close to undoing what God has done. Guilt free. By the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. We're free. Praise God. And so the second question, who is to condemn? Paul responds with that stunning answer. that Though the believers in Rome deserve to be condemned... And for all of those that would be condemned, Jesus was condemned for them. Look at what he says in light of that. Christ Jesus is the one who died, though he was innocent. More than that, Paul says. He didn't just die. More than that. He was raised. Jesus just didn't die and leave us hopeless. But he was raised, so we have hope for eternal life. The firstborn among many brothers... That we too who die in our bodies will be raised up to be with the Lord forever. That this death, uh, physical death, doesn't mean that we're separated forever. But just as Jesus was raised, so will we be. Who is also at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? What does a a king do at the the right hand of his father? In in ways, yes, Jesus is ruling. He, He is ruling. He's reigning. He is sovereign over this world. But he's standing. He's standing before the father. And what is he doing there? Indeed, He is interceding for us. He is just like the Spirit is a helper for weak saints. He's praying for you. He is praying for you. And He is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is, he is God. So He knows all of our needs. He knows all of our fears, all of our struggles right now. And He's praying for you. What do you think He might be praying for you? What in your soul is troubling you or is causing you to doubt the Lord that He might be praying for you right now about. Think on that. We get a picture of that in John 17. and Let me just read a, just a, a, a sample of that. John 17, verses 9 and 15. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who You have given Me, for they are Yours. Jesus isn't praying for every person. He's praying for you in a particular and a unique and a specific way. Like a a father prays for his children. Like a friend prays for a friend who is suffering. That's how Jesus is praying for you. And then verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Imagine, right, in in the courtroom, the, 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 the courts of heaven, Satan and the Savior standing and one is accusing and one is saying, forget what he's saying, Father. And the Father's like, yeah, I know, I know, right? I know what we did. I know what we accomplished. Jesus is interceding, though the devil is accusing, Jesus is a greater interceder on your behalf. You will not be an utter failure. Because Christ is standing before the Father on your behalf. Praise God. And so if you've had your sins removed by Christ's death. You don't have to live as though you are condemned. Your condemnation has been put on another. You are free. So don't fear the loss of your freedom. Don't be uh, become enslaved again to sin. You can say I am not condemned. And I will be with Christ and His children in glory. And so that's the sufficiency of the Son's sacrifice. But the third is this, the the sufferings that threaten our safety. We can be certain of our salvation even in sufferings that seem to threaten our safety. And Paul uses a unique word in this text. He says that believers are super conquerors. He says we are more than conquerors. Super conquerors doesn't translate very well into a a modern uh, English Bible. But that's the idea, a super conqueror. Someone who is abundantly uh, winning, right? I mean, hashtag winning, like, I don't know if that's still a hashtag, but you're winning. You are winning if you are on Christ's side. And so Paul builds the intensity of his message, and he asks this rhetorical question again, another one. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not only will he give us all things that we need, no one can condemn and no one can separate us. In fact, nothing can separate us. No tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, none of that. And I know some of you were afraid for your life in the front row here when Jean-Luc was swinging that knife around. I was a little afraid. What if someone takes all that you have? Everything. Everything. They kill off your family. Take away your freedoms. Take away your boyfriend. Your girlfriend. Your spouse. What if if someone takes away our country? That could happen. It happened to the people of God themselves. Israel. And yet God was still faithful. They became prisoners. Would that separate us from the love of Christ? Answer... No, right, there we go. What if you should fail in in the tribulations of life? Is it possible that this failure might separate us from the love of God? That's what we think. That's what we think. I'm I'm such a loser. I've failed. I've done it again. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What if I get in a conversation with a Muslim or an LDS person, which, by the way, next weekend, LDS training seminar, you should be there, all right? What if you get in a conversation with an LDS person and, and and they they say some really convincing like man, oh, that's they seem really genuine. They seem really sincere. Maybe what they believe is right. Could someone who with uh, who seems to know a bunch of of facts about the world or about spiritual things. Or maybe you can't answer their question right there on the spot. Uh, Will God be ashamed of you then? Will you lose your salvation? Will Will God abandon you? Answer, no. To all of this, Paul gives that resounding no. In fact, he says in a real sense, this is the Christian life. Look, he's, he quotes verse, Psalm 42 and verse 36. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who is that speaking of? The saints. The, the, the righteous people of Israel. They were being persecuted. They were, they were facing suffering and trials. And God did not abandon them. Yet they were humiliated. They were defeated in ways. They were mocked. But what Paul is saying is that this is this is normal life in, as a Christian in a lot of ways. And so again, Paul's answer to all of this is no. Look at verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors through Him who loved us. Our victory is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ. It's through Him. Our our security, our confidence is not in our performance, but in our Savior. Like a son who fails his father. Will his father stop loving him? A good and righteous father? No. No, he says, no, you're my son. I love you. I, I, I know who you are. I know you. You know me. And so let me help you. And though he fails over and over and over again, the father in his affection wraps his arms around his son and says, You're mine. And so even the sufferings that God has ordained to bring you through are serving His divine purposes to cause you to persevere, to trust in Him, to rely not on yourself but on the resources that He supplies. Because his father, because Christ gives his affection freely, we should run to him daily. We should run to him every day. Say, Lord, I, I, need, I need to be reminded of your love for me. Open the Bible. Read John 17. See how Jesus prays for you. Refresh your heart in his truths. So what situations in life are you failing in that make you think that you're a loser before God? Remember, that's not how God views you. That's not how God sees you, beloved. In all these things, you are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, rulers, things present and things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so... When Paul says that nothing can separate us, he means what? Nothing. Nothing. So you have great confidence in your salvation. Not only in the gospel that we are called to proclaim, that we are given the ability and the desire to proclaim if we're truly in Christ. There's not one person on the face of the planet that you couldn't stand before and proclaim the gospel with courage. You could do it. Because he's given you all the resources to do it. President Biden, Vladimir Putin, you name them. You can do it. But I know that you're just as scared to talk to one of them as your co-worker. I get it. We're all there. We all struggle, right? He supplies all the resources and nothing can condemn you. Nothing can separate you. So you can be courageous, brothers and sisters. You can be courageous in your pursuit of holiness, in your evangelism, in your service in the church. You can take risks in ministry for the sake of the gospel, and so, summing up the whole argument of the whole chapter, that those who are not condemned cannot be severed from the love of God in Christ. And I just want to close with this beautiful paragraph from a brother named Christopher Ash, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Romans 8. As we step back and we think about all that we've heard this weekend, the gospel that we are not to be ashamed of but can boldly and, and joyfully proclaim. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Everyone who will believe will be saved by God's grace. And, and the, the confidence that we have in our sanctification. That he who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion. Not one thing that God has ever promised has fallen through. And today, that because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can press on and persevere knowing that. We will receive what He has guaranteed. That is, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And to join Him with His brothers and sisters in eternity forever. It's all His grace from beginning to end. Listen to this. The entrance to the Christian life is like an archway. As we, as we approach From the outside, we see an open invitation. Come, right? Everyone come. Come to me. Come to me, Jesus says. We see an open invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And after we enter, we look back and we see over the inside the words chosen from before the foundation of the world. And so we should never confuse that our coming to the Lord is something that we did on our own by our own power because we know that in eternity we will look back and say, Jesus, you did it all. And none of it was wasted. And so Christopher Ash says, both are equally true. All are invited to come, but those who come learn that their coming and their subsequent perseverance are entirely by the grace of God. Were it otherwise, none of us would persevere under suffering so God will preserve you so you can be bold you can be courageous you can press on in your sanctification you can fight sin you can confess it you can deal with it you can serve with glad heartedness in areas of ministry that you feel like you're not very good at because nothing can separate you no one can condemn you and if God has purchased you with the precious blood of Christ He will deliver you all the way to glory so take hope take hope and press on Brothers and sisters, let's pray.